it's going to be really satisfying to like show the other people that told you you weren't going to be able to do it, that you actually did it. Is that how it felt for you, Anita? Yes, yes. I had a lot of fun rubbing it into my brother's face. Like, <laughs> hmm. Hi, I'm Anita Smith. I'm Bradley Rice. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the, the Salesforce, Salesforce for Everyone podcast. In today's Q&A episode, Brad answers a listener question about geo-arbitrage while working full-time as a Salesforce professional. Of course, don't go on social media and sit on your Zoom calls at work and be like, I'm in Portugal now, and now I'm not where you guys are, and my life is so much better. Maybe don't do that. Also, Anita gives her take on why remote jobs are still available, even for Salesforce freshers. Everyone just hold strong with the remote jobs. Just be strong and demand it. Don't go in the office. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Salesforce for Everyone podcast. In our last episode, we were answering questions from the audience. So thank you so much for sending us all of your questions. And I hope that you got value last week because we're doing it again in this episode. We are answering more of those entry-level sort of beginner questions for those people who are, you know, maybe you listen to the first 10 or 15 episodes of this show and you know a little bit about what's going on in the Salesforce space, but you still have a lot of those more basic questions. And in the coming episodes, we're going to be talking to people who are maybe two to three months into this process, and they've got some of those more intermediate questions, like they're already applying for jobs, they're already certified, they're already getting interviews, and they're wondering what's not clicking. So we're going to get a lot of those questions answered in our next episode. And then we're also going to be talking in the episode after that one to the more advanced people. So people already in Salesforce jobs who maybe had some questions they wish they would ask before they landed that Salesforce job, but they're realizing now I've got some more questions and I want those answered. So we are going to make sure to cover all of those commonly asked questions for really everyone across the board. But for now, in this episode right now, we're going to be answering more of those beginner questions. And with me today, I have Anita Smith. So welcome to the show, Anita. How's it going? Hey, I'm happy to be here. It's going really well today. How about yourself? Yeah, things are going good. I think we've got a solid list of questions that you know were sent in by the audience members. So yeah, I'm excited to dive in. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's get started. Actually, my brother asked this question to me when I first thought about getting into the Salesforce ecosystem. And I'm glad I didn't let his negativity get me down with this question. So here you go. With so many individuals entering the space, won't the market become saturated? Yeah, I love this question. I actually see this question quite a bit in the Salesforce for Everyone Facebook group. And I have to imagine this comes up in really a lot of community groups. So I'll give you my take and I'd, I'd love to hear your take. But what I see is is people using you know generic terms like that with all these people, with so many people. And it's like, how many people are we talking about? Because when we look at how many jobs are available in the Salesforce market, we're talking about hundreds of thousands every single year. And then when I turn to, say, the Salesforce for Everyone Facebook group, which is the most popular Salesforce Facebook group on Facebook, obviously, there are 13,000 members. And because we admin that group, I know that only about 5,000 of those people are active every month. And I know that a large percentage of them, probably 30% of them already have Salesforce jobs. So we're talking about 5,000 people, 70% of them, whatever that is, you know, maybe a little over 3,000 are actively in community groups talking about landing Salesforce jobs. We have hundreds of thousands of jobs available 
and we have 3,000 people in the biggest Facebook group that there is on the planet for Salesforce entry level jobs. So I don't know what we mean when we say all these people, because I think it looks like a lot when you're scrolling a Facebook feed or a LinkedIn feed and you're like, wow, all these people are trying to get jobs. When you think about it, it's a few hundred, maybe a couple thousand. It's not that many people. And there are way more jobs available than what's there. So my take on it is really think about the question. And I think you'll find that when you take a step back a little bit and get out of your own headspace, you'll realize it's not that many people battling for these hundreds of thousands of jobs. Yeah, the whole headspace thing. And it's funny, this question is the first one to be asked because I can't tell you how many times in my life where similar questions, just different scenarios where you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't even try because all these other people are doing it. But think about how many other people are having that same thought in their head. Like I've won a handful of like contest type scholarship type things just for entering because no one enters, no one tries. People just like, they're too afraid. And then they let people around them get into that same headspace and let them think, oh, I can't do it. It's not possible. But if you just go in and at least try, you'll be surprised. And the Salesforce ecosystem is just like a deficit of professionals right now. So yeah, it's not too late. I can tell you, I've seen tons of people come in right now and land jobs. There's plenty of jobs out there. Just go to any website and search for Salesforce admin, Salesforce business analyst, Salesforce consultant, you'll see a ton of job postings. Yeah. So I think the takeaway from everything you just said, like my takeaway from what you just said is for everyone listening, for all those people that are out there saying, what's going to happen if the market's saturated? What about all these people? You can ignore that. And you can almost sort of like laugh as you continue forward and stay focused and get this thing done and realize you're going to be one of the few when it feels like there's just so many people. It turns out you're going to be one of the few that are just staying focused, getting the job done, getting your certification, getting your hands-on experience, following the steps. And what do you know? You're going to be one of these people landing one of the many jobs that are available. Yep. And it's going to be really satisfying to like show the other people that told you you weren't going to be able to do it, that you actually did it. Is that how it felt for you, Anita? Yes. Yes. I had a lot of fun rubbing it into my brother's face. Like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> So moving on to the next question, are entry-level Salesforce jobs remote and do they have benefits? Yeah, this is a, obviously we're doing a podcast episode about commonly asked questions, but we get this question a lot. Are they remote? And there seems to be this, I don't know where this belief comes from. It's like, yeah, I'll bet a lot of the senior jobs are remote, but I bet the junior and entry-level jobs are not remote. Like there's just a bunch of beginners in an office somewhere and all the people who are supposed to be supporting them are not there. So they're just there by themselves in the office, but that's not the reality, right? So no. So we've had, you know, I, I think we've helped over 1200 people now in the last year enter into Salesforce careers through the Talent Stacker program. And out of those, I don't think we have more than 10. I mean, let's say 15 to be conservative, 15 that even have a flexible, you know, remote on-site, off-site. I, I think we might've had one or two people that were fully on-site and that's because they wanted to be. They were looking for jobs where they could be on-site because they wanted the on-site culture. But other than that, we might have 10 other people who've got like two days on-site, three days off-site, but it is extremely uncommon. So no, entry-level jobs for the sake of the conversation are fully remote, full benefits. 
no strings attached, all the things you would expect out of a great job. Yeah. And I, I know one of those two people you're talking about. And I remember they actually struggled trying to find in office full-time job because they didn't want to work remote. They actually had a harder time finding a job. And let me repeat this. Okay. This is a real legitimate job. It's not an MLM. It's like a normal job. You can work for a, a like well-known company that uses Salesforce and have the same benefits as all the other employees. And again, yeah, I've just seen remote positions. I'm starting to see companies try to push for flex or on-site, but you also see those companies looking for a really long time. So I mean, everyone just hold strong <laughs> with the remote jobs. <laughs> just be strong and demand it. Don't go in the office if, so you don't ruin it for everyone else. But yeah, still remote. That's really good advice. Yes, everyone. No one give in. We have to keep this fully remote forever. <laughs> don't you do it. Yes. <laughs> but as time goes on, those who want to work in office, it'll be a little easier to land your first job because companies are desperate to find people who work in office. Okay. So yeah, going again on the, the remote roles topic, are there pay differences based on location for the remote roles? Yeah, you know, sometimes there are. And so to sort of shed a little bit of light on the question, are there pay differences based on your location, even though the role is remote? So it's sort of a counterintuitive thought. But once you get into it, you realize that there is a bit of a reality here, right? So it's a remote job, but you still live somewhere. And if a business, for instance, I'm going to pick on San Francisco because it's known as a very high cost of living area. So in the in-office world, if you lived in San Francisco doing a job, it would pay, say, twice as much as if you lived somewhere in the East Coast, like rural Georgia, doing the same job. It would pay more because of the cost of living in that area. And what we're finding is that even though we've gone remote, and you might have somebody in rural Georgia working a remote job and somebody in San Francisco working the same remote job, you would think those should get paid the same because they're remote and where they live shouldn't have any impact on the pay. However, with, I would say, typically enterprise companies that have a lot of red tape and corporate policy and, and sort of all these like standard practices that they go by, you're going to find that they have something called these pay bands. And so they've you know effectively got a map and they just heat map out what the pay should be, what the pay grade should be based on location. So you will find that some companies still have some of those pay bands. So if you live in a high cost of living area, you might get paid a little bit more. And if you live in a low cost of living area, you'll get paid a little bit less. However, I've noticed with mostly like small and mid-sized businesses and really with consulting companies in general, remote work has been the norm for about a decade now, if not more. So they don't typically have those pay bands. And you'll notice that it's more based on your experience, your certifications, and the particular job roles and responsibility that you have. So that's my perspective. What are your thoughts, Anita? I have a question. So those old school traditional companies that pay based on where you're located, what happens if you happen to live at one of those higher cost of living cities like New York and San Francisco, get the job and then move to a lower cost of living city within like a, a month or a few months? Yeah. So I'll say this is not my advice, but this would be a strategy that would absolutely work. So all you really need to do is establish an address in that area, right? So when you get the job, have an address in that area. And when you move, you need to maintain that address. I would say that's the best way to handle it. 
if you wanted it to be super clean, no notification to HR um, to up or finance to update your address for tax forms to be sent to you in the mail, that kind of thing. So I would just get a virtual address in the state or the area that your residency is in. Just get a virtual address and do that. But on the other hand, unless they're crazy rigid and, you know, today you live in New York City and then a couple of months later you don't, you know, that would... I don't know. That would be means for me to start looking for another job if a company was reaching out saying, hey, we noticed you moved and now we're going to lower your pay. Like I would legitimately be looking for another job if they were valuing me based on where I'm living. Hmm, I kind of like that. It opens up my mind to uh, I've been seeing a lot of places internationally where there's like they're really popular with expats. Portugal is one of the hot spots to go. And then the time zones kind of work with U.S. times. Have you seen anyone do this? I mean, like, how would you go about doing that? Still like the same strategy or you got to think about it a little bit differently? I think the same thing would apply, in my opinion, as long as you're maintaining U.S. residency, right? Like you don't want to get yourself or the company in trouble if you're like literally not a U.S. resident anymore. But yeah, it would be maintaining that physical address in the United States. As long as nothing's red flagging the HR department of your company, they're never going to do anything. And I mean, of course, don't go on social media and sit on your Zoom calls at work and be like, I'm in Portugal now and now I'm not where you guys are and my life is so much better. Maybe don't do that. Don't draw attention to it. And honestly, no one really cares what you're doing there. I think we mentioned this in previous episodes. People are so busy with their job and their kids and their life and responsibilities and all that's going on. They, they do not have time to look at your background and say, that doesn't really look like where I thought she lived, that they're disinterested in what you're up to. Just make their lives easier. Don't make them have to go update and change things and go through all these loopholes. Just make it easy on them. Maintain your physical address in the US. And I would say you can pretty well do that, you know, however you like. Now, for your tax purposes, like filing your taxes at the end of the year, like I'm not an accountant. But if you get audited by the IRS based on what countries you're paying taxes in, like I would say still pay your taxes based on your residency in the United States to avoid any kind of tax situations, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> we are not tax or finance professionals. If your situation is complicated, please go speak to a CPA. <laughs> so I just wanted to make this clear. Don't add anyone that you work with to your social media, such as Instagram, Facebook, Snap, TikTok. I don't know what else is out there. I mean, LinkedIn is great, but don't add them to your personal social media so they can actually see and have proof that you have been traveling. I mean, you might not be doing anything wrong, but just the mindset of other people. Sometimes people get jealous or have weird feelings like, hey, we're paying this person to work and they're actually on vacation, even though the person gets everything that needs to be done done, they might have other opinions. So just to be safe, don't add anyone to your personal social media. And this should be done for like any profession, like we're professionals here, keep work and life separate. All right, that's my just my little soapbox. So next question, uh, this one is, I don't like getting this question because I have various thoughts about it. So this question's come up a couple of times. Can I land a job without a certification? Yeah, it's a rough one. To, to your point, I can kind of hear you struggling with thoughts and feelings around this question. And I think part of this is that it feels like people are trying to skip part of the process. And then there's people like you, I'll use you as, as an example, Anita, where you come into this and you spend 
probably over a hundred hours and a lot of research and energy and practice tests and the nervousness that goes into preparing for the exam and just all of that. You've gone through that and you've accomplished becoming certified. And now you have someone else saying, can I just skip past that? Can I just not put in that work? And the short answer, is it possible? Yeah, we've seen it done a handful of times, but I'll tell you typically the reason that someone is able to bypass the certification is because they either have industry experience, like a lengthy industry experience. So maybe they come from a long financial services background and then they get hired by a consulting company that specializes in financial services, Salesforce implementations. So they're willing to overlook the fact that they're not certified in order to snatch up somebody with industry experience. However, keep in mind that 70%, over 70% of Salesforce job applicants are certified. So by attempting to land a Salesforce job, not being certified, you're already in the bottom 30% because that's that first tangible piece of evidence that tells an employer you are qualified to do this job. As a baseline, you are qualified to do this job. And I'll say for yourself, it also tells you I'm qualified to do this job. I've put in the work it takes to pass this exam. So I think mentally when you're going to interviews and when you have that first day on the job, you feel a little bit less like an imposter because you know that, hey, I know as much as the next person who's got a Salesforce certification. I deserve to be here. I still have a lot to learn, but I'm working these things out. So do you need a certification to land a Salesforce job? I would say baseline answer is yes, but there are some nuance you know, situations that could allow you to bypass that. I think the key thing here is intention. Anyone who's landed a job without a certification never had the intention to not get their certification. I've never seen anyone like, oh, pfft, I don't need that. I'm just going to get a job anyways. It's always the overachievers who are so passionate, who are like extremely good. They know Salesforce really well. Like you can tell like, oh, they're going to pass the exam. No problem. Those are the people that are landing jobs without a certification. The ones that are either like they're so good, they're about to get their certification anyways. You just know like they'll be able to handle the job. It's not anyone trying to like take the fast route, take a shortcut to landing a job. It, those aren't the people that are landing jobs without certifications. And when it does happen, it is rare. It doesn't happen very often. So just get that thought out of your head. Go for the certification. Yeah, 100% agree. It's all about intention. I think you nailed it. All right. Next question is, what are the names of the most common entry level roles? I feel like this keeps changing. I feel like there's more and more roles that keep being added. Yeah, I'll keep it to the basic ones. And then you can chime in on that too. But the typical entry level roles you're looking for are Salesforce administrator, Salesforce business analyst. And then I would say something like a junior or apprentice consultant is effectively what you're looking for. Those are going to be the main role names. Like if you're on Indeed or LinkedIn jobs and you're searching for job postings, that's typically what you're going to be searching for. A lot of people might argue, well, what about entry developer, like junior developer? And I would say the reason that is off of my list is because for most people who are not coming from a tech background, transitioning into a developer role for your first role is going to be a pretty big weight to lift. Like that's a lot for a transition. So I would say for most people, you know, probably truly 99% plus, you're looking at business analyst administrator, and something along the lines of junior consultant. So yeah, those are my thoughts. What do you think, Anita? 
Yeah. I mean, even when I first started, I thought it was just junior Salesforce admin. That was like the only thing I was searching for. I didn't like it wasn't until later on that I knew about the Salesforce business analyst as an entry level. And I didn't even think you can get into consulting as an entry level. I was like, consultant, don't you have to have years of experience actually becoming a consultant? But in this ecosystem, yes, you could become either a junior consultant or an associate consultant. A lot of different companies have a lot of, they have different titles for the same jobs. So you kind of have to do a little bit of research. But even then, there are a ton of other Salesforce adjacent roles with different like Salesforce apps, those companies. I mean, I, I don't know all the titles. I just know there's more than those basic three ways to get into the ecosystem. Yeah, I think I've seen like Salesforce support specialist or something like that. You've got to dig a little because the companies, a lot of times they don't quite understand what to call the position because they don't realize how incredibly massive the Salesforce space is. They think this is just a tool we use at our company and we're looking for someone to help us use this tool. And they don't necessarily know the ecosystem and the titles and exactly how, how everything's supposed to be. So I would say, you know, when you're job searching, search Salesforce as a keyword and then make sure to sort of peruse those job descriptions. It's more about looking at the job description and seeing if you feel like you're a fit for their needs. I would say 70% of their needs. If you meet about 60 to 70% of the requirements, I don't care how many years of experience or what degree they say you need or whatever else. If you meet 60 to 70% of the job requirements, I would say that's a great job to be applying for. Yeah. And you just taking that extra step to research different titles aside from the generic ones is going to put you so far ahead because no one else is doing that. Everyone is just searching junior or Salesforce admin or Salesforce VA or maybe a junior consultant. No one is searching for those other jobs. So you're going to have a much better chance landing those jobs. And then speaking of those various roles, another common question, which I have sometimes still have today is what does a typical day look like as an entry level Salesforce professional? Yeah, I think this is different for everyone, right? Because we we have to keep in mind that different companies use Salesforce differently. Different companies have completely different company culture, the way they communicate at work, the way that they get work done, the way that they handle projects, how fast paced they're expecting employees to be. It all depends on a lot of things, right? So I think the best we can do is talk about what we've seen and experienced and you know, that's our perspective. But of course, different people can have different experiences that they've had. So for the most part, you are supporting, I'll say as an internal Salesforce professional, so not at a consulting firm, but internally at a company. So you have one customer who is the company that you work for, and they're going to have a variety of end users, all the people at the company who use Salesforce, they log into it and they use it to do their day-to-day -day work, whether that's making calls or sending emails or contacting leads or whatever it is. Those are your end users and you're supporting them. Your job is to support those end users. So it could be something as simple as they can't get logged in, they forgot their password. It could be something as simple as I'm trying to look up this lead that I called yesterday and I can't find their information. I know I talked to them, but I can't find them anywhere. Their name was this and you, you can help them find that. Moving up from those very basic things, it's you know helping people build some reports to say, how many new customers bought our product last month? Can we pull some information on that and running reports and creating dashboards to help show the data 
so that the business can make business decisions based on the data. So that's a lot of the day-to-day requests you might see as an internal Salesforce professional. And then, of course, you might be working on projects to implement Salesforce for a new department or add on some really custom functionality or you know, install some new applications off the app exchange. So it could be a variety of things. Typically, you're going to have something like uh, there's a few different tools. You might be using Slack or just your Outlook emails or Gmail emails or communication tools like Jabber. There's a lot of different tools that companies use internally to communicate those requests to you. And so those come in, you do your best to get them done. You push back if you don't feel like it's a valid request or you need more information. And then again, you just do your best to support those internal users. So Anita, I know you're in consulting, so I'll let you talk a little bit about what a day might look like for somebody who's not on the internal side, but they're out there at the consulting firm working for multiple customers. Yeah. And again, it varies. Everyone has a different experience. I mean, even in the same consultancy, I've spoken to people who work for the same company, has the same title, but like completely different experience. So consulting world, typically you're working on multiple projects at the same time with multiple clients. But again, it just depends on the type of project. If it's like a managed services project where you're kind of like their resourced help for like normal support stuff, or if you're actually doing a big implementation and like doing a lot of customization or changes in their Salesforce org or building it from the ground up. So there's that part. My personal experience, I feel like is a little different than most people who go into consulting. I let's see my very first project lasted over a year, which is not normal in the consulting world. Consulting world, it's usually under a year, maybe like six months, really depends. And I was with one client the whole time for 40 hours a week. And I was their Salesforce business analyst. And most of what I did was we followed like Scrum and Agile methodologies, which you can dig in a little deeper, or we can talk about that a little more. If you have more questions, just type it in the review or respond to the LinkedIn or Facebook group. But what I did was a lot of <laughs> a lot of status updates, a lot of documentation using tools like Jira and Confluence or Microsoft Teams, whatever the company asked for, where they keep their documentation is where I trace that. A lot of translating what the business wants to my developers, going back and forth, kind of the middleman, kind of project management a little bit, just making sure the whole process goes smoothly and then timelines are met and things are like in place, T's are crossed, yep, I's are dotted, whatever that saying is, and making sure everything gets deployed and fixed in a timely manner. My most recent role that I just transitioned to, still same consultancy, same client, different department, is actually a scrum master, which I didn't even know was a potential role in the Salesforce ecosystem. But like having that Salesforce admin certification and knowing the software development process like helps a lot with this role too. And this role is also similar to the BA from what I've seen so far. I don't know. I've only done it for a month now. We'll see. <laughs> but yeah, again, the roles, they all kind of like mix together. I'm see- I talk to a lot of people in the industry who are like solo admins or admins for big teams or consultants or BAs. And I always see like, I'm like, is it all the same job? Just like different titles because it's a different company because there's bits and pieces of every role that I see repeats over and over again. Yeah. I'll say that most of my working career was in consulting from 
working for small firms, big firms, and then owning my own independent consultancy. And I'll say the big difference for me, I think, was that consulting is more fast-paced and there's more expected from you. That doesn't mean I would shy away from it as an entry-level job. And, and a lot of people think, to your point, none of the entry-level jobs are going to be consulting jobs. Like Those are going to be like in-house, but it's not true. Most of the entry-level jobs are consulting jobs. And you do have more support when you work for a consultancy because you're surrounded by other people who are Salesforce professionals also. So typically, you're going to be, to your point, an associate consultant or a junior consultant, and they're going to be mid-level consultants, project managers, senior consultants. You're going to have so much support. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to hold your hand and wait on you hand and foot, but it does mean if you've got a real question and you've put in the effort to try to figure it out, you're going to get some help. So I would say internal versus consulting for those jobs. I would just say consulting is going to be more fast-paced. You're going to learn a lot, a lot faster. You're probably going to end up getting certified for those you know, second, third, fourth, fifth certifications much faster. And you're going to get a large variety of experience and it's going to build you as a professional. Internal roles might be a, you know, a little more chill, but again, depends on the company. Yeah. I There's this one analogy. I'm not really sure where I first heard about it, but it's like river versus lake. So like a shallow lake, you know, which I compare with consultants, you know, a little bit about a lot of different things. And then like a deep river is more of like a solo internal admin where you know a lot about one specific thing for that company. Hope that makes sense. But the number one thing I just, I always try to follow as a Salesforce professional in general is one, figure out the current processes to find all the gaps, all the pain points. And then three, figure out a way to fix it or make people's lives easier. If you could do that, you can be successful in any job. In a nutshell, what you do as a Salesforce professional is you make the life of the people who use Salesforce at the company easier. That is what you do. Yeah. All right. So that wraps up the questions we had for this episode. I mean, I think in these last two episodes of answering those more basic fundamental questions, we have covered a lot of territory and if you haven't already, maybe you're dropping into the the podcast and you're hearing maybe some of the stories from the guests that we had on um, or some of these Q&A sessions that we're doing right now. If you haven't listened to episodes one through eight, that's all about how to land a Salesforce job. So make sure you go back and listen episode one through eight. That is going to cover everything you need to know about why Salesforce jobs are so in demand through actually landing a Salesforce job successfully. So yeah, check those out. If you are getting value from this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It would mean the world, especially, you know, getting a, a startup podcast off the ground. You know, we rely on those reviews and that helps the podcast platforms know that you are getting value. So in our next episode, we are going to be moving out of these more basic fundamental questions and we're going to be moving into intermediate questions for people who are a little bit further down the path. Maybe you already have your first certification. Maybe you're already applying for jobs. Maybe you're already even interviewing for jobs and you're trying to figure out how to make everything connect and actually get across the finish line and land that job. Those are the types of questions we're going to be answering on the next episode. So if that sounds interesting to you, make sure to listen in. And if you haven't already, make sure to head over to talentstacker.com forward slash start and try out the free five-day challenge. That's where we're going to walk you through getting started on Trailhead, updating your LinkedIn profile, getting hands-on experience, and understanding everything you're up against when you're landing this first Salesforce job. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. 
To get started for free on your own Salesforce career, go to talentstacker.com forward slash start or check the show notes. There you'll find all the resources you need to start earning 60 to 80,000 in as little as eight months, no matter your education or career background. The Salesforce for Everyone podcast was produced by Edmund T and engineered by Andrew Mendonca. If you like what we do at this Scrappy Can Do podcast, please help others find us by leaving a five-star rating and a great review on whichever platform you're listening to us right now. See you next time.